0: Hello, and welcome to GabFest Reads for April 2022. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. In Love by Amy Bloom recounts the death by suicide of Amy's husband, Brian Amici, following his diagnosis with Alzheimer's disease. The book is a detailed account, very detailed account of how Amy and Brian struggled to find a way for him to take his own life and finally located the one place in the world that would help them, which is a Swiss organization called Dignitas. Dignitas. It sounds grim. It is not. In Love is a, it's a beautiful book. It's a sad book. It's also a really funny and delightful book, which I hope we will convey today. And truly, I tore through In Love, not just for personal reasons that I'll get into, but because it's paced kind of like a thriller, but also reads like a comedy, and it has an enormous heart. So Amy Bloom, I'm so happy to be joined by you from Connecticut. Welcome to Fest Reads.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: And before I get to In Love, I want to remind our listeners that Amy is also a spectacular writer in all kinds of forms, in essay, in novel, in short stories. We've talked, both Emily Bazelon and I have talked on the Gabfest about Away, her novel, which is one of our very favorite books, both Emily and mine. A very different flavor than this. So, Amy, who was Brian Amici? Why did you marry him?
1: (laughs) Oh, well, he was a hard man to stop. Um, And he certainly wanted to get married when he played football at Yale his nickname as he would have been happy to tell you was Thor and that gives you some sense of what of what he was like he was just a big presence he was a big dog big heart big laugh big appreciation of the world big appreciation in some ways of himself of the opportunity to be who he was and I fell in love with all of that. This was the kind of man who was not offended, if you pointed out his faults. He knew what his faults were, and he was okay with them, and he certainly hoped you were okay with them, too. He
0: he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. How did that happen? When did that happen?
1: In the early summer of 2019, and it seemed to me, and it also seemed to his neurologist, that he had probably had... The disease for at least the preceding three years, and possibly a little bit longer. I mean, Alzheimer's is always a diagnosis in hindsight. You know, you you look at things after the diagnosis, and you go, "Oh, perhaps that was what was going on," or "Oh, perhaps that's when that occurred." And there had certainly been a number of incidents over the last three years. And then he had had a hip replacement surgery, and really struggled with all kinds of short-term memory, names, appointments, and even sort of slightly broader conceptual things. And so we went back to his his orthopedic surgeon who was a great guy and said, you know, the the hip is doing great and you know, it's possible that the anesthesia has caused some short-term memory that should resolve within about 6 weeks. And some of it resolved, but most of it did not. And then Brian said, I should go see a neurologist. And so we went.
0: I think what is really striking, there's so many striking things in this book. But one thing that's really striking, which I want you to talk about, is this shifted extremely quickly from his diagnosis to his decision to take his own life. How did that happen so quickly? And did you, how did you support that? How did you find a way to support that?
1: It did happen quickly, but but only in the sense that if you know what you want and somebody asks you what you want, you can tell them fairly quickly. He was a great believer in agency and autonomy and self-determination and people's right to choose how they wish to live his whole life. And um, he came from a family in which people did talk fairly openly about death and dying and end-of-life issues. And when he understood the diagnosis and spent a weekend thinking about it, he said exactly what he felt, which did not surprise me. Which was, "Darling, I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees. You know how I am, and you you love me, and you're going to help me." And he was right.
0: Had you or Brian seen anyone go through dementia and die of it?
1: Yes, and that was really, that was a big part of. Brian's decision-making process and also mine, we had seen it with a close family friend from the very first stages of who moved the salt and pepper shakers to who stole the salt and pepper shakers to why are there people in my house that I don't know to what is happening to me. And that was terribly painful. And I had seen it several other times with people who I was less close to, but nevertheless, it was not as if we had no idea what this looked like or what it involved.
0: So you set out to help him, and I must say, I must compliment you on this part of the book is extremely funny in a very grim way about how difficult it is to try to help someone kill themselves in the United States. Yes. So, for example, can you just talk about why? Like, I thought, yes, you get a bunch of fentanyl. What's the problem with getting a bunch of fentanyl?
1: It's really, really hard to get in America. It doesn't have great press. Not that I don't feel that I would be equipped to go make a successful drug buy, you know, in some corner of some city in Connecticut, but nobody was having it. Nobody was selling it. There's also, of course, an issue if you're buying a drug illegally that it will not be the drug that you thought it was, and things can go horribly awry. I also should say that it wasn't Brian's wish to take his own life, although he understood that that might be necessary. It was his wish to die peacefully and with me holding his hand.
0: At no point does anyone with Alzheimer's become eligible for a right to die in this country, basically. 100%. Explain why.
1: Although Alzheimer's is a terminal disease, it may take years. And so the very first requirement for all of the right to die states is that two physicians must declare that you have less than six months to live. Well, if you were an Alzheimer's patient and you had less than six months to live, should anybody be able to tell you that, you would be so advanced in your cognitive decline that your expression of a wish to end your life would have no meaning, even if you were able to make that sentence, which you probably would not be able to. Brian and I, like so many other people over 50 or over 60, had always thought, well, when the time comes, you just go to Vermont. And you have a painless, peaceful death. And I would say, not so fast, Shorty.
0: Yeah. And with Alzheimer's especially. I mean, my father has Alzheimer's, and we way missed the window on this if if he even wanted that. Talk about that window.
1: Well, the window is not only short, but it is unknowable. You know, as Brian said, if somebody could have said to him, you have three pretty good years in which you're still going to be able to read the New York Times and enjoy music and enjoy conversations with friends and play with your grandchildren, he would have said, great, I will put this off. But in fact, nobody could say that. Nobody could tell him anything about the future trajectory because, one, it's highly individual, and two, it can sometimes be like a boulder rolling downhill. He and I were both very aware that, unfortunately, time was of the essence.
0: You ended up in Switzerland.
1: I ended up being the researcher in charge.
0: What's in Switzerland?
1: So what's in Switzerland is Dignitas, which is a nonprofit organization. There are actually now two of them. There's Dignitas and there's Pegasus, which is started by sort of an offshoot of people from Dignitas, and they're very similar. You become a member. And then, should you wish to avail yourself of their services, you send um, a biographical statement and your medical records, and they assess that. And then there are several phone calls. And then, if you get a provisional green light, you go to Zurich and you have two medical interviews. And all along the way, And especially once you get to Zurich, the doctors are constantly saying, are you sure? Is this what you want to do? Please feel free to change your mind at any time. We will be very supportive if you change your mind. Um, And then after the second interview, assuming that goes well, and they are reassured of your cognitive judgment and your discernment, you go to a small apartment in a sort of industrial suburb and you take an antiemetic, and then you take the medication, which is sodium pentobarbital, also something very, very hard to get in the United States, and um, you fall into a light sleep and then a deep sleep, and then you pass. It was terrible, but it was painless and it was peaceful, and we got to hold hands.
0: I think the book is so extraordinary and it, it is sort of paced like a thriller. We all know what the, where we're headed, but it's this build up, this anticipation is, is nerve-wracking for us as a reader. And I wonder, you knew what was coming, yet you were there for several days before Brian died. You guys had to go eat meals. You went for walks. How do you, knowing that on Thursday, your husband will take his own life, With you by his side, do you eat a meal? How do you have lunch? How do you decide what to order for lunch?
1: Well, it's not great, you know. Um, It's not a good time, but I have spent maybe more time than a lot of people in hospital corridors, you know. How do you get a coffee when your mother is having um, heart surgery? How do you eat a chicken sandwich? when your baby is being intubated? I mean, the answer is you do because you do. Um, It's not joyful, um, but it turns out that it's possible.
0: Do you think Brian enjoyed anything about those last days?
1: Uh, We did have um, a terrific afternoon in a tea shop, And we were really all about the pastries. And we did actually manage to have a conversation that was very typical of us, which was probably a 20-minute back and forth about if you wanted the one with the little chocolate bonnet or you wanted the one with the little red gelatin cap that had little gold flecks in it, and was that gold, like, really gold, or was it just foil? And why did they do that? And um, were these particularly Swiss pastries? They certainly weren't Italian pastries. Yeah, you know, So we had a conversation like we usually have. Um, and I think for, the, for that half hour, we did both actually have a good time.
0: Did you get the chocolate bonnet?
1: I did, yes. And he ate most of it, <laughs> which would be pretty much the way that would usually go.
0: It did not at all surprise me that Dignitas and Pegasus are Swiss. It seems to make Mm -hmm. sense. You would think they're Swiss. But it did surprise me that there's not a Dutch one and a Canadian one and a Japanese one and a Thai one, that there aren't more in countries that are sort of – that you think might be receptive to this.
1: Well, for example, in Belgium or in the Netherlands, they don't really need a Dignitas because the laws already make it possible – For somebody in these circumstances to seek out a physician and Uh, arrange for their own death, uh, you know, a physician-assisted death. And uh, there is more of that in Canada, medically-assisted death and physician-assisted death, than there is in the United States. So a lot of these countries do have uh, a very different um, set of laws and policies around the right to die, but they are not available to tourists.
0: I suppose we're not uniquely this way, but we are we're not permissive in the way that some other countries are permissive for their own citizens. We
1: are spectacularly opposed to people choosing to die with dignity or to make their own choices about this. If
0: you were president of the United States or, or, <laughs> or queen of the United States, what would you change in our laws about this?
1: I don't know that I would, that I am the right person. I don't think I am to sort of talk about what policies should be. But I think that the way the right to die laws are constituted now, they are so carefully and intentionally the tiniest eye of the needle. And that is the goal. And it seems to me that is not the best goal. The goal might be how can we serve people who are suffering? For people to make an informed and intelligent judgment about this very difficult period, often when they are in real pain or real despair or their quality of life is so violently diminished that they would prefer to end their lives. And, you know, if they don't suffer from some sort of mental illness that would prohibit them from making a sensible decision or they're not cognitively no longer capable of making it, it seems to me that laws that might serve people and alleviate suffering would be better than laws whose primary intent is to keep people from acting on that possibility.
0: So I have a lot of dementia in my family. My father, as I said, has Alzheimer's. My grandmother, his mother, probably died of Alzheimer's too. And I... Just trying to anticipatorily plan so that I could you know, that my children can off me, that I can I can take my own life at some point. And it's so hard. It is there's nothing there's nothing. There's no options, there's no no allowance that here I am making a decision with full all my faculties. Like I don't want to live this way, but it's outrageous that I can't plan for it.
1: It is. And if you write that in your directive and you find yourself, sadly, having Alzheimer's, nobody will pay any attention to the directive whatsoever.
0: Right, right. It's, it's terrible. You begin the book, the epigraph to the book is, um, please write about this. Mm -hmm. Why did Brian want you to write about it?
1: I think there are a couple of reasons. He wanted me to tell, I think, our story and his story, and also write with the hope of being a little bit informative and giving people something to think about.
0: Well, I think you have done that. I suspect that this will end up changing the debate about this in this country more than, more than a lot of activists are changing it. I hope, that, I hope it has that effect. I don't know if you intend it to have that effect, but I hope it does.
1: I would be glad if it had that effect.
0: Amy Bloom's book is In Love. Amy, thank you for coming on GetFest Reads.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for the conversation.
0: GabFest Reads is produced by Jocelyn Frank and Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate podcasts. Follow the GabFest on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening.
3: It's time to take your body care routine to the next level. Introducing Osea's best-seller body care set, the perfect companion for your summer travels. This four-piece kit transforms dry skin to silky, soft, and glowing. It features travel sizes of Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae body oil and body butter, clinically proven to improve skin elasticity, along with their anti-aging body balm and salts-of-the-earth body scrub. And to top it off, it's packed in a vegan leather bag, making it a must-have for all your summer adventures.